Welcome to Learn Me Right in Health Law and Bioethics, aka the, the H Lab. <laughs> I'm Sinead. And I'm Ruthie. And this podcast is aimed for literally anybody interested in topical health law issues, where we talk to experts who present evidence based research. Nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal or medical advice. Any research or resources that are referred to within the podcast will be uploaded to our show notes after each episode. These podcasts are supported by the Australian Centre for Health or Research, where both Ruthie and myself are PhD students. And with that in mind, (laughs) welcome to the very first podcast. Today we have uh, Sam Roach, a HDR student here at QUT. Can you just give us a quick introduction into um, your position here at QUT, how far you are in and your PhD topic? Yeah, definitely. Uh, So I'm an associate lecturer at QUT. Um, Prior to that, I was a sessional academic. And prior to that, I was a lawyer at Minter Ellison. And I ended up in their sort of health law group. The focus of my PhD is on how to improve vaccination uptake against COVID-19. So I've just passed confirmation, so that roughly translates to confirmation occurs about a year to 18 months in. Um, So I'm probably about 20 months in now. Um, and you aspire to finish a PhD in about three years, although <laughs> I don't know how often that aspiration is. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, we've got uh, some rapid fire questions here. Mm-hmm. Um, so your pronouns? Uh, him. He. Um, PhD highlight so far? For me, my favourite thing. Uh, well, I guess I started off my PhD, um, you know, I was just focusing on vaccination generally. And then once COVID-19 became a vaccine preventable disease, that's quite a a big deal i think for all of us but also for my work yeah so to focus on COVID in particular <laughs> yeah that's fair uh coffee order uh i always get a long black always and what would you sing at karaoke night shake it off <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right um sorry to start us off and just to get some key kind of words and definitions sorted out can you tell us about some of the key words in your area and what they mean for example vaccine hesitancy mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, as you say, vaccine hesitancy is obviously one of the, the key words that pops up in this area. And you would think, given how frequently it is used, uh, both in the general public and by academics, uh, that there would be some kind of consensus around the meaning of this word. Uh, but there's not. <laughs> it's actually quite contentious. So the original definition and the origin of the word comes from the World Health Organization. Uh, and they formed a group, which is the uh, World Health Organization strategic advisory group of experts working group on vaccine hesitancy. And they produced a report in 2014, which was the SAGE Working Group on Vaccine Hesitancy Report. And they described vaccine hesitancy in this way. They said that vaccine hesitancy refers to a delay in acceptance or refusal of vaccines, despite the availability of vaccine services. And then they went on to say that uh, vaccine hesitancy is influenced by factors such as complacency, convenience, and confidence. So what followed that, uh, was quite a bit of uh, contention around whether or not that's an appropriate definition. Uh, and there's one paper in particular that uh, is often cited and it's quite authoritative that was written by uh, Bedford et al. And the reason they took issue with the WHO's definition of vaccine hesitancy is that they incorporated this idea of convenience. So they said this, the convenience uh, of accessing vaccination services influences vaccine hesitancy. And they said, well, actually, that's not really accurate uh, because you could have a situation where a person doesn't get vaccinated because it's very difficult to access these services. 
It doesn't follow though that that person feels hesitant about the vaccine itself. So they said there's a distinction here between the individual decisions that a person makes and systemic factors that might deter a person or make it uh, very difficult for a person to actually go and get vaccinated. So they said, in a sense, that the definition that uh, the World Health Organization come up with was too broad uh, and that we shouldn't include this concept of convenience when we're considering whether or not someone is in fact vaccine hesitant. And that sort of highlights uh, something that is often overlooked when we're discussing uh, the reasons for why people don't get vaccinated and that is that vaccine hesitancy is not the only reason uh, so of course it is a significant reason it's something that you know we've all probably seen at some stage uh, but there are other uh, issues that impact on whether or not a person gets vaccinated and these are things like whether or not vaccination services are accessible and of course we've all had some experience with that lately uh, because we had these vaccine rollouts, it wasn't the case that we could all get vaccinated at the same time. Uh, affordability uh, can also be a problem. And so when we're talking about the COVID-19 vaccine, um, we can say, well, you know, it's free, of course. But you also need to consider the opportunity costs that comes with getting vaccinated. So if, for example, uh, you need to take time off work, uh, or you need to travel a great distance, uh, these can come with a cost, uh, and that cost can be onerous for some people. Um, then there's awareness. So when we talk about awareness, we're talking about the degree to which individuals have knowledge of the need for or the availability of vaccines. Uh, and so the, um, the issues of hesitancy, access, awareness and affordability collectively all contribute to this overarching problem of uh, what I would call suboptimal vaccination. And so when I say that, when I use the term suboptimal vaccination, what I'm referring to is people who aren't vaccinated, um, people who may have had some of their vaccines, but not all of them. So maybe you've just had one dose, but not all your doses of the COVID vaccines. Uh, and also those who unnecessarily delay vaccination. Uh, because of course, while they're not vaccinated, they are still vulnerable to this disease, uh, the disease. That's, that's so interesting. And it's great to point out those other factors because we do focus so much on the hesitancy side of things. That's really great to, to hear about the other, other kinds of issues. Can you tell us um, a term that we hear a lot is anti-vax or anti-vaxxer? <laughs> what are your thoughts on that term and how does that differ from vaccine hesitancy if it does? Yeah, so, I mean, anti-vax is, is a term, I guess, that's used in popular culture and we see it a lot in media. I don't think that you'd see, you don't really see it so much in academia um, other than by referring to what certain demographics are called uh, in, in the media and things like that. Um, so the term anti-vax is, is sort of a, a value-laden term, uh, and so there's literature that says that it has these inherent um, negative connotations associated with it. To say someone is anti-vax is to say that they're wrong in some way. Uh, and so the same sort of connotations don't apply to vaccine hesitancy. Um, that is quite a broad term, and when you're talking about someone being hesitant about vaccination, they may well have uh, good reasons for being hesitant. It doesn't necessarily follow that a person is wrong because they are vaccine hesitant. So by way of example, um, if you're severely immunocompromised uh, and a doctor has said, you know, you shouldn't be vaccinated, of course you'll be hesitant about being vaccinated, uh, but you're not unjustified in being hesitant. No one would suggest that you should get vaccinated if a doctor's told you not to. Uh, when you say someone is anti-vax, um, it does sort of portray the image of someone who's quite vocal about, uh, you know, vaccines being terrible for everyone or they're poisonous or 
you know, part of some sort of conspiracy that the government is in on and things like that. Um, the approach that I've adopted in my work is to not really use that term um, because it is a bit ambiguous. It's not clearly defined in literature as to what it means, but also because of those negative connotations, if your end goal is to try and um, convince people that being vaccinated is a good thing, you don't want to start from a place where you're using a term that has these inherent negative connotations that can lead to alienating that group uh, and really want to be working with them uh, to try and arrive at a, a positive outcome. Yeah, so you're like removing a lot of that negative emotion and that frustration and anger that can come with naming these people this way. But when someone says vaccine hesitancy, I almost feel a bit more empathetic towards that group. I'm like, I want to understand why you're hesitant. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, being vaccine hesitant doesn't mean that you will remain unvaccinated. Uh, many people will feel hesitant and nevertheless get vaccinated. Uh, but it is that initial indecision or delay um, yeah. that is what we're trying to address. Yeah. So would you say then that one of the things that an individual can do in this situation is to perhaps term this a different way and to maybe stop contributing to this by calling it anti-vax and maybe start using vaccine hesitancy? I think vaccine hesitancy is a more accurate term. Yes. Okay, awesome. All right, so moving on to the next question we have for you is, what is your research showing so far about this problem? So my research basically, when I'm, when I'm looking at the problem or the purpose of my research, so why is it worthwhile looking at improving vaccination uptake for COVID, uh, it breaks the problem down into two parts. So the first is, and, and it almost goes without saying, but what is the problem with COVID? You know, why, what kind of detriment has this had for our society? Uh, and it really doesn't, you know, require much proof to show that it has obviously had a very significant impact on our society, and that's been well established in literature. Uh, so what I will say, though, is that there are both direct and indirect implications of COVID-19. So, of course, um, there's morbidity and mortality directly associated with people who contract COVID-19 or develop COVID-19. And this, these numbers are constantly changing uh, because obviously the disease continues to spread. Uh, but the last I checked, um, <clears throat> we'd had over 56,000 cases of COVID in Australia with one over 1,000 deaths attributable to COVID. So that's wow. quite significant. That's yeah. a very significant direct impact that COVID has had yeah. on the health and well-being of Australia's population. And one of the things that you do often see people who might um, not agree with vaccines is that they, they say that there's basically no mortality from COVID, but clearly that's not the case from what your research is showing. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, yeah, this is authoritative sources that this information is taken from. So, so yeah, uh, and then aside from those direct impacts, you also have these indirect impacts. So um, the Australian Bureau of Statistics monitored last year the kind of impacts that COVID-19 had on Australia's population. And they found that there was a downturn in business turnover, business demand, uh, business operations became more difficult, household income declined, employment, or unemployment rather, the rate of unemployment rose, uh, GDP also declined. So it had a significant indirect impact. And that was because of the interventions we implemented. And that's not to suggest that those interventions are unjustified, but it does highlight that the extent of the impact that COVID has had is not limited to morbidity and mortality. It has this flow on effect for the broader society as well, which can uh, you know, have quite serious impacts on people. Uh, and by virtue of uh, impacting things like GDP and employment and things like that, it has also had an impact on uh, mental health uh, in Australia. Uh, and a recent report from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare outlines a lot of these sorts of issues. Um, and so 
that's the first thing that I go through in my research is to highlight exactly what are the ways in which we can negatively impact a human target. The next thing to show then is what is the role of vaccination in all of this? So yes, I think we can all accept and it's not very contentious to say that COVID is you know, awful uh, and it's had a terrible impact, but what does vaccination do? You know, how can it help resolve this issue? Uh, and so that same report by the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare states that uh, vaccination provides the largest potential for controlling COVID-19. And this is a sentiment that's um, been echoed by many authoritative sources, which again, I can provide to you. So vaccination plays this important role in the sense that once we are vaccinated, we are immune or at least very resistant to uh, these infections uh, and the symptoms that follow from those infections. So you're less likely to go to hospital, uh, which in turn puts less burden on the healthcare system. Uh, and so obviously vaccines then play a very important role. But vaccines are only effective if people choose to be vaccinated. So we have these fantastic vaccines, but we face this additional obstacle here where there is a certain demographic within the population that doesn't want to be vaccinated. And if they're not vaccinated, then vaccines are less able to overcome the sorts of detriments that we've seen COVID cause. So what my research is looking at is, is yeah, at least in part, is how to improve vaccination uptake so that vaccines are able to do their job, uh, so that we are able to address these sorts of detriments. Okay, so that's incredibly helpful. So thank you for uh, teaching us that. Uh, we're going to move on to the next phase of this, is where we talk about government interventions. And now Sam uh, told us just before that we started to maybe not call these solutions, to yeah. call them interventions. So can you just reiterate or expand on that? Yeah, so I suppose it is just a bit of a terminology thing, but I would steer away from calling them solutions because it seems to imply that if you implement this particular course of action, everyone's going to get vaccinated or, you know, there's, there's no longer going to be a need to improve vaccination uptake. And it's not true. Um, and, and all of these interventions that I'm going to work through have been implemented in, in some way or another in Australia, not necessarily in respect of vaccines, but certainly in the public health space. Um, and so it doesn't necessarily follow that they will resolve the issue. Um, they may help a little bit and collectively um, they might get us to where we want to go. Uh, but I would never call a particular or one specific intervention the solution um, because also they may just be ineffective as well. Yeah, thank you. So on that, what are some interventions that you've been looking at? Okay, <laughs> so, um, so to preface what I'm about to say, I'm not advocating for any of these interventions. Um, and, and certainly I'm, I, I'm not at that point in the research where I would do so. Um, but what I am going to do is outline what the options are for us. So, you know, what is our selection that we can choose from? Uh, and there are 10 different forms of interventions that can be implemented in an attempt to improve vaccination uptake. So the first that I would identify is called persuasion. And so when we talk about persuasion, what we're talking about is a form of interpersonal influence in which one person tries to change the attitudes or the behaviors of another person by means of things like argument or reasoning um, or structured listening. And so an example of persuasion is an education campaign. So this is a very um, sort of non-restrictive approach. It doesn't really, it doesn't involve coercion or manipulation. You're simply providing people with information about things like uh, the significance of vaccination. Uh, you know, why is it worthwhile being vaccinated? Or you address concerns that people have. Um, this kind of approach is called persuasion uh, and it is considered uh, the least restrictive approach you can adopt when you're trying to overcome uh, or trying to improve vaccination uptake. 
And of course, we have many examples of that. You, you need only look at the Department of Health website for vaccination against COVID. And there's lots of information like that. Uh, so the next approach I would look at is called altering the information environment. So something that's been uh, recognized in the public health space, and there's a particular author who's quite authoritative in this space named uh, Larry Gostin. Uh, and what he's observed is that health and behavior can be influenced by the dissemination of information. And we can see, for example, if uh, you're surrounded, if you're in an information environment where you're being inundated with um, information that suggests vaccines are, uh, are not a good thing, uh, and you're not really exposed to any information that um, indicates they are a good thing, uh, you may be misled into thinking that, uh, that vaccines aren't something you should do, vaccination is not something you should do, um, and it may lead you to become more hesitant. Uh, and so one way um, that has been suggested in literature to combat this is by altering the information environment. And so what this describes is uh, limiting the dissemination of disinformation, and that doesn't necessarily mean outright censorship, um, but it may mean limiting the reach that certain people have when they're disseminating disinformation about vaccines. Uh, so in Australia, uh, in general discourse, there are no limitations on that. Uh, however, uh, false information about vaccines can't be published in trade or commerce um, because this breaches Australian consumer law. So it's not entirely novel to say that uh, these sorts of uh, dissemination of disinformation should be limited. Uh, and there's an interesting case on this um, ACCC and uh, homeopathy class, which I can give you. Um, <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> Interesting read. <laughs> and so, and other countries have taken a, a, a sort of more restrictive approach. So Singapore implemented the Protection from Online Falsehoods and Manipulation Act, um, which is not limited to uh, what we would call trade or commerce. Uh, and so, you know, we can see that this sort of intervention has been implemented in other places also. Another intervention that we would all probably be familiar with is nudging. Um, and so there's quite a lot of literature out there about nudging, uh, but effectively what it refers to is uh, presenting a series of choices in a manner that alters people's behavior in a predictable way without forbidding a particular option or significantly changing their economic incentives. Um, so there was a study uh, a little while ago where doctors, um, rather than saying, do you want to be vaccinated, instead say, okay, well, it's time for vaccination. Uh, and by rephrasing it that way, uh, they actually saw that there was uh, an uptake in vaccination. Interesting. So the way that things are framed can have an impact on people's willingness to be vaccinated, that kind of extra prompting. Okay. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, so moving on from nudging, we then have incentives. So when we talk about incentives, uh, what we're talking about here is um, incentivizing a person to uh, engage in an action that is in tension with their desires or with their will. Uh, so an example of where this has been implemented in Australia, and it's no longer um, in effect, but we used to have something called the maternity immunization allowance. And so this was a means tested payment of $200 for every child who was fully, uh, fully immunized. Uh, so the scheme ended in 2012, but the purpose of the scheme was to say to people, well, you know, you have this additional external incentive to go and get vaccinated, because if you do, we're going to give you $200. Um, so it, it uh, does provide that extra prompting for some people to, to go ahead and get vaccinated. This is often conflated with a separate intervention, uh, which is called withholding financial benefits. So no jab, no play? No jab, no pay. Oh, 
no jab, no play. Okay. Uh, which, yeah, so no jab, no play is a different one again. Okay, uh, interesting. Yeah, so no jab, no pay, uh, which I'm sure we're all familiar with, is this idea that um, you are required to get your children immunized if you want to access your end of year family tax benefit part A. Uh, and so what this is saying is you are entitled to this benefit, but we're not going to give it to you unless you get vaccinated. So this can be distinguished from a financial incentive because you're not entitled to the maternity immunization allowance. Uh, what it is, is uh, kind of like a reward in order for you to get vaccinated. Whereas for, for withholding financial benefits, your default is that you are entitled to that benefit, but it's being withheld from you until you go and do this extra thing. So that is considered uh, more restrictive than an incentive because you're withholding something that someone's already entitled to. So moving uh, on again then uh, is taxation. So we don't tax people who are unvaccinated in Australia, uh, but we have implemented taxation in other public health contexts. And tobacco is a good example of this. So uh, in Australia, both imported and Australian made tobacco products are taxed. And that taxation is there to try and deter people, at least in part there, to try and deter people from uh, pursuing that behavior. So from continuing to smoke. Uh, and so something that is spoken about in literature uh, is whether or not it's appropriate to tax people who are unvaccinated to try and deter them from that behavior. So to try and prompt them to get vaccinated so they're not going to pay that tax. Um, the next intervention uh, up from there, so this is a more restrictive intervention again, is mandatory vaccination. And this is one that you will hear quite a lot about, um, but I don't think so often the definition of mandatory vaccination is provided. And it does seem at times to be conflated with things like compulsory vaccination, and I would distinguish the two. Uh, quite often I have seen posters and things like that where people will be referring to mandatory vaccination and they'll say, well, don't force me to be vaccinated. And it's different again, it's not forced vaccination. That's not what the term refers to. So mandatory vaccination refers to a, a policy in which uh, goods or services are withheld from people who are unvaccinated. And uh, the no jab, no play policy is ah, mandatory vaccination. Okay. So you're withholding childcare from people uh, who uh, have, don't have their children vaccinated. So yes. childcare is a service that people would otherwise be able to access. Mm -hmm. So by withholding that when someone's not vaccinated, that is an example of mandatory vaccination. Okay. But it doesn't mean that it's a criminal act not to be vaccinated and it certainly doesn't mean that someone's going to come to your house and forcibly vaccinate you oh, okay so that might be where compulsory or forced vaccinations come in yes so compulsory vaccination um is when you make non-vaccination illegal so it's obviously okay. a very restrictive measure to implement um and so that's uh, you know that's quite at that far end when you're talking about how restrictive interventions can be but that is what compulsory vaccinations refer to in literature is this idea that uh, it's going to be illegal to be unvaccinated. We then have forced vaccination, which speaks for itself. Um, it's the idea that uh, someone would come along and vaccinate you against your will, uh, which most people would find unpalatable. Uh, you know, most people would think that's such an infringement on a person's autonomy, it can't be justified. Yeah. And the final one that I want to talk about uh, is the regulation of space. Uh, and so this comes from this idea of uh, vaccine passports. It's the idea that you can't go and occupy certain areas if you're unvaccinated. Um, so this can be distinguished from mandatory vaccination, which is about accessing goods and services, whereas regulating space is saying, well, you know, this is not about accessing goods and services. It's actually about 
your ability to exist in certain parts of society. You know, are you allowed to walk down Queen Street if you're unvaccinated? Or are we going to say that you can't go wow. to places like that? Yeah. That's so interesting to clear up all the differences between those ideas because they would definitely jumble up in my mind. Same. Um, yeah, yeah so wow. Think, yeah, thank you. Yeah, that, I reckon that's going to change a lot of the debate around mandatory vaccinations by distinguishing it from forced. Yeah, and I mean, uh, these, these terms aren't defined in legislation or anything like that, but there's a sufficient amount of literature to suggest that that is the definition of mandatory vaccination. So I would feel comfortable in saying that's, you know, that's how it should be understood. Yes, this is really helpful. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, is there anything else you wanted to add to the, the no, no, that? Yes, yes, awesome. Yes. Okay, so we've heard a lot about vaccine hesitancy and how it's distinguished from anti-vax and how that's a helpful disting distinction. Uh, we've heard a lot about your research and then all of these interventions, not solutions, <laughs> <laughs> um, which are possible and available to the government. Now, if you're an individual, <laughs> um, you're probably wondering how or like, what can I do with this information? How does this actually help or affect my daily life? We've heard one tip, which is using the, the right terminology in order to helpfully improve debate. Um, do you have any more tips? Yeah, so there are a few things that I think a lot of people encounter when they begin talking about vaccines. Um, something that anecdotally I've come across quite often is um, someone who is hesitant about vaccines will make quite a strong statement. And then if you question them on that statement, they'll say, well, prove that isn't the case or do your own research or something like that. So they'll say something like, uh, you know, vaccines give you autism or vaccines are poisonous. And you say, well, you know, I don't actually think that's the case. You know, can you prove to me that's the case? And the person will respond by saying, well, can you prove that it isn't? Um, so if you do come across that, or if you have someone instead say, do your own research or something like that, that is an example of a logical fallacy. Uh, and it is called shifting the burden of proof. And if you Google shifting the burden of proof, you'll see that this is uh, talked about. Uh, it's a strategic like, tactic. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, it's this idea that um, you're going to make an assertion and then uh, the, it, it's acceptable to say to someone, well, you have to believe that assertion until you can disprove that's the case. And that's not true. Uh, that's not how things work. When you make an assertion, it's on you to prove that that assertion is true. And if it was any other way, uh, it would lead to a kind of paradox. Uh, so for example, let's say that um, person A says to you that the world is run by the Illuminati. And then let's say person B says to you, the world is run by aliens. <laughs> These are mutually exclusive theories. You can't believe them both at the same time. But if you're going to believe something until you disprove it, you would have to. So you'd have to somehow entertain these two mutually exclusive theories. And that, that's just logically flawed. Uh, so it's always on the person making the assertion to uh, prove that assertion to be true. Uh, so that's the first thing that I would say. So if you come across this, you should call people out on that. It's actually not your job to disprove what they're saying. It's their job to prove it to you. And you have no obligation to believe what someone's saying until they give you good reason to believe that thing. Oh, that's very helpful. Yeah. Like that will calm a lot of people down who might be feeling really frustrated by hearing the do your own research Yeah, thing. yeah, that's <laughs> certainly come across a lot. And so when you say that to someone, when you say, oh, well, you know, no, actually, it's your job to prove this, uh, some people will come back to you with, with research, quote-unquote research. Uh, <laughs> and so, so the next thing I would say is to do what everyone uh, who's researching this area would do and anyone who's doing a PhD would do, and it's to critically analyze that research. 
And so don't accept at face value simply because someone can point to something that what they're saying must be true. And um, you should consider, well, if they're referring to a journal article, for example, are the authors of that journal article publishing the article in a reputable journal? Uh, or is it published in a blog on a website that has no means of peer review or anything like that? Uh, and then let's say that it is published in quite a reputable journal. Uh, is it being misrepresented? So is the person you're talking to claiming too much? Are they saying something different to what the author of that article is saying? Um, and so, you know, when you're talking about vaccines, because it's so important, uh, you know, this issue of whether or not you should be vaccinated because it impacts your health in such a significant way, it is worth investing the time in ensuring that something is, is you're justified in believing something before you actually believe it. So if someone points you to literature, I think it is worthwhile actually reading that literature for yourself so that you can arrive at a decision as to whether or not you think what that person is saying is accurate. Yeah, the, uh, the concept of source reliability is something I'm very familiar with. I did a history minor and for four units, it was just, is this source reliable? And you have to ask so many questions like, what is the intent of the author in writing this? Do they have any bias? Are they, do they have a reason to misrepresent something? Are they an authoritative source on this topic? And I think these are all helpful questions. Yeah, and particularly your last point, whether or not they're authoritative source. This comes, quite, uh, comes up quite often in the vaccination space. So you can even have people who will have the title of doctor, for example, and they'll start giving opinions on vaccination <laughs> and, and you will inherently want to believe that person because they've, they've done a PhD or you might think that you know, they have a medical degree or something like that. But for all you know, that could be a doctor of geology. Uh, and, and so you need to make sure that that person's expertise is actually relevant to the statements that they're making um, because there are some figures who are perceived as being quite authoritative in this space, who do um, disseminate a lot of disinformation about vaccines, um, who don't have appropriate expertise. Uh, and then, What does peer-reviewed mean for the person who doesn't know what that is? So peer-reviewed means that uh, other people who are authoritative in that space have reviewed the article uh, and concluded that, you know, the, the conclusions you've drawn are, are reasonable, they're logical. And does the article have to identify that it is peer-reviewed? I don't know if the article does, but certainly the journals do. The yes. journal that it's published in will specify that it's a peer-reviewed journal. Yes. And so it follows then that obviously the article is peer-reviewed. Yeah, so this is accessible information and secure ways to identify authoritative information. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much, Sam. We are so grateful <laughs> for you coming down here today and having a chat to us. Have a great day. Do 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 do.